0: Out here in the perimeter there are no stars Out here we is stoned, immaculate Hello and welcome, this is the C86 Show I'm David Easton, as you know we love a special guest This week is going to be the turn of the musician Philip Drucker Who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and everything else I do believe he was just a few miles out of um, Coachello, sort of in that sort of um, Los Angeles kind of area. So, um, yes, this is the interview. He was in various bands, including Them Rhythmants and also 17 Pygmies, and I do believe Savage Republic. But we're going to find out more about that in the interview. Also, one of the reasons I sort of was curious to speak to Philip about life was that um, there was a band in the 80s who I was a bit obsessed with called Jane Bond and, and the Undercover Men who um, I had the album, John Peel had recommended it or played a few tracks from it and I noticed that um, he was the photographer and I've always wanted to get um, hold of a, co- a member of the band but unfortunately I've failed so far. So in that curiosity, I decided to um, get in touch with Phil, just sort of find out some more information about that period as well. So, anyway, this is it the interview. I know it's a fascinating line uh, intro there, but anyway, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Phil or oh, Philip, take it away.
1: Well, I mean, when I first uh, started to get uh, into music, was I was actually a very it's going to sound a little funny, but I was actually a very late bloomer to music. Uh, When I was growing up, uh, my parents, uh, for whatever reasons, uh, did not want us playing rock and roll or any of that in the house. And so mostly what I, uh, what I listened to when I was growing up was mostly classical music, um, klezmer music, and uh, Pennsylvania Polkas was mostly what I grew up with. Yes. And then finally, at um, what happened was, is uh, my first sort of foray into music was, I had a friend whose sister uh, had a copy of um, Incense and Peppermints, a single by the uh, Strawberry Alarm Clock. Classic. And I used to go over there like every day because I wanted to hear that single. And then finally, uh, my friend at the time, and I was like, I don't know, seven or something, maybe eight, and he finally figured out that I really didn't want to see him. I wanted just to listen to his sister's record collection. Right. And so he, he banned me. He wouldn't let me come over. <laughs>
0: <laughs> my God, you—you you definitely, you definitely had a bit more of a adventure trying to get into music because mostly, yeah. I mean, I'm in my mid fifties now. So I grew up, you know at the time, you know, in a working class background. And I think when parents or when adults got together, you know, they were very young. My mum was in her late teens. My dad was in his twenties. There was very little money in the fifties, you know, that sort of late fifties in the UK. So, I mean, they normally had to sell everything to sort of just get some pennies together and get a house. And I think my dad sold his record player and his records. And I'd heard a lot of people having the same sort of story. So we didn't have a record player in the house until... early 70s when suddenly there was a bit more cash I suppose and they went oh we've got a record player and it's like oh my god and every little record was amazing but before then there'd been you know in our country, you know in the UK was top of the pops and a bit of radio one and especially on a Sunday evening they would have the top 40 charts which we seem to be slightly interested in so and it was the kind of the glam period of the early 70s that I suddenly went oh that's very interesting with like Sweet and Gary Glitter and then obviously Alice Cooper doing schools out was like, wow, that's incredible. You know, that's that's kind of feels like it really means something. I can relate to that as a 10-year-old going schools out, blow it up and all that. So yeah, so with your sort of musical world, I mean my parents weren't, you know, against music. They just we used to come into the living room and go is that a boy or girl? You know, they used to have that kind of, you know, we can't tell anymore if they're a boy or girl kind of thing. It's like, he's got a beard, Dad. You know, he's got long hair. You know, the long hair was a bit, in the 70s, kind of made people sort of think that people were girls, I guess. True.
1: Yeah, definitely. definitely. So yeah, um, my parents were, uh, you know, really worried about, uh, most of their worries were about drugs, actually, for the most part. They were just under the impression that everybody that was in a band, you know, was a drug fiend. And so, and, you know, it's funny because I remember going to school and we'd actually have these talks with, you know, we'd have these big, you know, what do you call them, you know, when people get together in an auditorium. And I still remember some of them. Some of them were about, um, you know, rock and roll music. Uh, the funniest one I ever went to was about Dark Shadows. If you remember that TV show, it was really popular. Right. And they told us that if it that if you watched Dark Shadows, which I did and, and virtually everyone in my my class did back then, that that was probably a good sign that you were a drug addict. <laughs> and you know, we're all looking around going, seriously." And so you know that was kind of a big big deal back then, and you know stuff like that. And then you know again, remember that i would I grew up in Los Angeles, and you know my parents were terrified of Manson. And people like that. I mean, they thought all hippies were like Manson. They just wanted nothing to do with it. Right, and, my God, they were terrified that we were going to fall into this world. Yes. And so one of the one of the victims of my early childhood was was music. They simply wouldn't let that music in the house. Now, finally, at the I was 14 years old. I still kind of remember this. And my sister, who's two years younger than me she threw an absolute hissy fit. She had to have yellow submarine. And so she actually made my parents go out and buy her a yellow submarine. And so that actually was really a big part of my, Ooh, this is neat. <laughs> you know, what the hell is this? I mean, I had literally, I was like 14 years old and I had almost never heard the Beatles by that point. I mean, I, I knew who they were. I'd heard, I want to hold your hand, but I had no, I had their records. I had, you could have told me their names, and I would have said, well, which one's John? Right. I mean, I really would not have known, and, um, really until that time. And it was just kind of funny, because the ironic part was is that when I first heard it, because of kind of my upbringing, I actually liked Side B better, which was the orchestrations that uh, George Martin did. And then all of a sudden, I found myself, well, let's flip it back over yeah let's slip it back over and then all of a sudden pew, it was like eh. <laughs> <laughs> <gasps> and so you know I really loved Yellow Submarine and you know all the other songs that were on there and and from there you know I I kept getting more Beatle records and things of that nature and then finally uh, sort of the big crossover was when I finally uh, managed to get a hold of the uh, White Album. Wow. And, blew my mind I mean completely blew my mind I mean just whoa what the I remember listening to Glass Onion and I, I and it's funny because in my kind of naivete I was like oh wow I didn't even know something like this could be music <laughs> you know? I mean it was just all of a sudden all this just this kind of world opened up to me you know yeah absolutely I mean, it's great it really was you know, to a great degree I mean, if you were to count the bands that I knew, there was like the Strawberry Alarm Clock, the Beatles, and then my father, when he was in a good mood, let me listen to Frankie Lane. And that was kind of what I knew of all that, you know?
0: Yes. Um, Blimey. Well, it's, it's, in a way, I often wonder what it must be like... um, For children whose parents have, you know, they've been to, you know, in this country, like the Glastonbury Festival, and they've done all these things, they've seen all these bands, and, you know, they're playing all these kind of rock records and punk records. It must be like, no wonder they're not really possibly that much more into music. They're into something quite weird, like, you know, some computer app or TikTok or something like that. Whereas at least I kind of think, at least there's a lot to work on, isn't there, when your parents are so against something quite so like, well, this is quite innocent, really, but, you know, so I, I don't know, they, you know, you probably thanked them years later, didn't you, thinking, thank God I had something to rebel about, I didn't have to find something else other than music, I didn't have to go and, I don't know, do something really peculiar to feel like I was breaking away from the family kind of traditions that much before, yes, adulthood. So then how did you start to, I mean, from there, because a lot of people you know picked up a guitar they started doing a bit of singing you know something around the house but obviously that's still quite a long way from you i suppose singing might have started but but how did you then sort of navigate the 70s
1: oh um yeah <laughs> the 70s um well you know the the thing was is my my next kind of big musical foray after the uh, beatles record was um I actually uh, wanted to learn how to play an instrument. Uh, I, one of those real oddities, but for some reason, uh, my parents gave my sister piano lessons. They gave my brother, or whatever, we had a younger brother, they gave him saxophone lessons. And I had never gotten lessons in anything. And so I, I started to think about that one day. And uh, I just said, da 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 da. And, um, you know, they said, well, you know, why don't you just why don't you join band at school? And uh, we think that you should play the clarinet. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> but so that's what I did. I joined the band, then my school band, my middle school uh, band, and uh, learned how to play the clarinet, which was just like dead dog boring. I mean, first chance I had to get out of that. I, I got out of that. Um, so that was kind of but again now I could you know I could play I, I knew how to play music I knew kind of how to read it and things of that nature and then it was about another two years later and I finally talked to my parents into buying me a guitar finally I mean it took many years I I wanted one many years earlier than that but then finally for my 16th birthday they bought me a, a nylon guitar this little tiny kind of nylon guitar and Of all the things I actually, um, yeah, I looked in and I said, Well, you know, it's not really electric, and they were like, Yeah, that's the point. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, um, but you know, I started to play and I started to learn a lot of like um, uh, 60s music. You know, I would just kind of listen to it on the radio and things of that nature. Um, by now I was allowed to listen to the radio, you know, again, yes. kind of big. Advantage in life, and so I was playing songs like you know. To be honest with you, I mean, I remember thinking it was really a monumental occasion when I learned to play um, "Windy." If <laughs> you remember that song.
0: No, and, I don't remember uh, "Windy."
1: Who's coming out the weather
0: Oh, right, that, that was like yes. Yeah, I guess I, it's I, that kind of soft pop side of it, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I really grew up on soft pop. Really, until I went to, um, it was many years. Uh, yeah, well, not that many years later, but um, when I finally got into uh, high school, <laughs> which again was another kind of step removed from my parents, um, you know, it was very interesting because um, then all of a sudden I was hearing all sorts of different things that I just, you know, to, I mean, to, it was funny because people never really understood. That I was hearing a lot of this for the first time. I had no idea what this was, and uh, in particular, I had a class in uh, an art class in design uh, at at my my high school, and every Friday, uh, one of the students was allowed to pick a record, and so they would get to be DJ. You, they get at my school. They said you get to play one record a week, and every week somebody took a turn. And um, there was basically, I went to a very uh, culturally diverse school. Uh, there was, uh, everybody was there. I went to a school where just basically any, I, I mean, I, I don't know what it's like to go to a white high school. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> there was just a lot of everybody in my school. And so uh, every week though, the, the music would always break down into three categories, always. You were either every time it would come to what we call them earth cookies, like sort of 60s females. Right. Joni Mitchell. Guaranteed every Friday. Joni Mitchell. <laughs> and whenever one of the guys would get a shot for the most part, Led Zeppelin, Aerosmith, you know, just all the heavy metal stuff. And then because I went, you know, to a school with a lot of African-Americans, they got to play a lot of different stuff that I'd never heard. I'd never heard Smokey Robinson before. uh, all this crazy stuff. And so the thing was, is um, finally it came to be my turn. And uh, everyone's like, yeah, Phil, you know, white guy, he's going to go for, he loves Deep Purple. I didn't love Deep Purple. I don't know where (laughs) they got that from. But anyways, I picked the spinners. And I thought they were going to kill me. I mean, I literally thought they were going to chase me out of the room because I wanted to hear the spinners because I just loved the spinners. I thought they were great. And it was really kind of bizarre because, um, you know, the next kind of big thing in my life was, you know, again, you could watch American Bandstand, which I thought was completely boring. I mean, I just, (laughs) or you could watch Soul Train. And so I used to watch Soul Train, but I never told anyone because I just didn't know what to think. Then, one of the biggest moments, I still remember this biggest moment in my life, David Bowie was on. Ooh. Said, oh, that all white people can like this. <laughs> and this was like this great moment for me. And so I still think of when I think of really influential records in my life. I always think of, like, Strawberry Alarm Clock because it was that single, you know, ooh, look at that. Yeah. I always think of this yellow submarine. I always think of the White Album. You know, I kept buying Beatle records. And then I always think of Young Americans. It's just this incredibly important record for
0: me. Yes. And there was that cl- that classic one where he's kind of dancing. He's got a sort of all, a stick between his hand. hands. They just get into this groove, which I think eventually morphs in. You know, it was a kind of a cover, but they then sort of change it and then make it a a particular famous song of David Bowie's, which I can't remember now, but I remember him and Carlos um, Alomar um, talking about this particular thing that they would do, you know, a, a jam that they did. And I just remember being very, I mean, I, you know, obviously they watched it later on. I wasn't old enough to watch it then. So yes, David Bowie. Yeah,
1: I mean, I actually saw it on TV. At the yes.
0: Time
1: he played live, you know, or not maybe it was taped, but I'm just saying the first time I saw that. And it was really, you know, and, you know, I sort of went to school. This was on, we saw it on Saturday mornings as we played here. And so, you know, Monday morning, I'm kind of looking around thinking, "Eh, I wonder what's going on, you know, with anybody. And, you know, all of a sudden, us David Bowie fans came out of the closet, so to speak. (laughs) And us soul fans came out of the closet, so to speak. So this
0: is about 75, 76, isn't it, when he did Young Americans? Because he'd done... Um, Ziggy, Aladdin, scene, then Diamond Dogs, I think, and then Young Americans in L.A. And then he went over to Germany, Berlin. So that was kind of the mid '70s. So then, what happens at the? Because obviously, did you start getting into bands in the sort of the, the sort of the late '70s period and playing?
1: Right, right after that is when I started to like sort of start to uh, seek out bands and things like that. Um, I had still never been to a music show by that point, that was still one of the ones that I wanted to, um, you know, still conquer, go actually see a, well, I mean, I'd seen live music, but not rock and roll, okay, not really allowed to do that, and it didn't have a whole lot of, you know, well, no one, none of us drove back then, so it was, you know, kind of difficult, but then finally, I found some persons who, um, you know, were like-minded like I am, And I think it was the next year, it was was 77 or 78, I'm sure, because I I think I had just gotten out of high school. But finally, managed to find a couple of people who uh, wanted to see some of the bands that I wanted to see. And um, I I was invited to come see uh, Blue Oyster Cult. And that was actually the first show I ever went to. And the thing was, is they were huge, because that was like when... Don't Fear the Reaper was just this massive song. I mean, you know, no one knew who they were before that. We, we, knew, we knew them as the umlaut band before that. Nobody really thought much about them. Then all of a sudden this massive song comes out, you know. And I actually managed to go uh, see them play. Uh, opening was a band called Angel, which I had, had no idea who they were. And uh, the middle band was uh, Bebop Deluxe. Bebop Deluxe. God, they really? were Great band, Bill Nelson, a really talented guy, yeah, and his band. And uh, you know, again, I came home from this just like, whoa,
0: <laughs> pretty crazy. And
1: so then, I so, I started.
0: Punk, so punk was kind of happening at this stage because I remember seeing quite a few yeah. posters in U in the UK, you know, punk nights, and Blue Oyster Cult oh. seemed to be sort of part of it a little bit you know obviously they were they had the sort of benefit of being american and a bit rock but obviously hadn't become blue oyster cult you know classic rock so they were still they were sort of getting into that gig a bit weren't they in those days before they became don't fear the reaper and suddenly more cowbell.
1: yeah i mean definitely whereas they were more heavy metalish and yeah uh, people started to become more poppy and things started to... So again, it appealed to me. I mean, I you know was not a hardcore metal guy by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but uh, the other thing that I, I always found very interesting is really in many ways, uh, punk was very, very underground uh, in Los Angeles until about 78, really. It came to Los Angeles a little late. And the reason for that was because, uh, you know, it, we were still like sort of a... Heavy metal glam city, and it just so happens that you know right around that time, all of a sudden we had b- bands coming out like Guns N' Roses and Van Halen. So they took more of the spotlight away, and punk became kind of more of a uh, kind of an underground insiders' game. Didn't really break through uh, for a couple of years. I mean, we we knew who the Sex Pistols were, but you know, back in those days, it's like did you manage to get a copy of God Save the Queen yet? I mean, it was stuff like that. We were all looking around trying to get these imports back then because it was released here. And so, you know, finally, punk started getting a little bit bigger and things of that nature. And then actually in Los Angeles anyways, like, you know, and some people would disagree with me on this one, by the way, because they actually went to the punk shows and stuff like that. Again, I did not. But, um, you know, really, when New Wave came in, you know, it was like everybody loved Blondie. Everybody loved The Talking Heads. Everybody loved, um, you know, all of those CBGBs bands and stuff of that nature. We didn't really have very many out here like that. But the band, I think, that really crossed over and brought punk into the mainstream here was Richard the Voidoys. Uh, okay. He was big in Los Angeles. I mean, Blank Generation was yeah. Moment, you know, really here when you're sudden like, hey, this is kind of cool. <laughs> we're getting more of the punk stuff. And um, all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I guess you've heard of Rodney on the Rock. He was a yes. big DJ here. Well, he started playing all the punk stuff, all the like really obscure stuff. And so all of a sudden, that's when it started really to catch on here. But it took, we were, Los Angeles was kind of late to the punk scene.
0: Right. It's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Because that yeah. whole city, like you said, CBGBs, which had and Max's Kansas City and the Mud Club, you know, I suppose it was very driven by people like, um, I suppose it was the Ramones and, and the, the kind of people like Danny Fields and those kind of people who were sort of pushing that scene. And, uh, and obviously Talking Heads came along, like you said, and then Blondie, who were looked upon as being like, Haha, they're never going to make it. Oh God, they've made it. They're much bigger than all of us. <laughs> we're not jealous. Uh, so um (laughs) so yes Blondie definitely sort of blew the doors open on that one didn't they so then so then as the because because you got you know I mean it was interesting because I didn't really I mean I I got a brother who's older than me and so I was you know he introduced me to the world that he was into prog you know he's seven years older so he was that that his formative years he went for prog you know yes Genesis Wishbone Ash Barkley James Harvest the solo work of Rick Wakeman then he had Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, that was it. There was no singles, it was just solid albums. So punk came along, it was like, no way, that doesn't really matter. And and then sort of, so I was like, when I was getting a bit older, I kind of was too young for punk, but then I realised that had happened. Then you had that post-punk period where you had, you know, Magazine and Gang of Four and Peel, and then you suddenly had those kind of early bands like U2 and Simple Minds, Psychedelic Mm -hmm. Furs, and um you know that that kind of i suppose echo and the bunny men that early 80s so when did you start sort of picking up on that kind of next period of music
1: yeah um yeah it's funny i know exactly what you're talking about i mean all of a sudden the 80s bands <laughs> and um you know i mean they really i mean i look back now and you know a lot of talented bands of good music actually uh came out back then um, by now uh, the other thing that was kind of big here and driving a lot of that was MTV. Right. so you could MT, actually,
0: You had MTV. MTV. We had three. Oh. We had four channels. Give us a break. Yeah. We only had three. We had a fourth. It was still to. It was still coming in eighty two, eighty three.
1: <laughs> well, you know, as we say in America, four hundred channels and nothing's on. So there you go. <laughs> but. Um, yeah, but so MTV was, I, like, for instance, the first time I ever saw Echo and the Bunny Man was on MTV. I remember seeing them. It was um, The Killing Moon, I think, was the very first thing I ever saw from them on that. Uh, some of the other bands that I learned about uh, right around that time, uh, first time I'd ever heard of The Cure was on MTV. Yes. You know, bands like that. I mean, we just, you know, again, the records weren't, I mean, if if you wanted to be like you know go to a record store and go through the import bins you know you would literally buy stuff and you'd have no idea what it was but every so often you'd say oh I saw this on MTV and so you kind of gravitate toward
0: that at least you knew what it was yes but it's interesting with mtv because i i sort of wondered why a flock of seagulls was so big in america because they were they had a you know a big hit here in the uk but they were sort of a bit of a i wouldn't say novelty band yes i do because they had the funny hair and it was just like a bit of a cheesy song but apparently they had a video and mtv was so desperate it's like anybody with a video will play it we'll give you you know it's literally like so it's like oh that's you know they like literally just play this song all the time not all the time but you know a lot and it's like because they were you know like please could we start making videos like otherwise we've got a flock of seagulls for the rest of your life. so obviously suddenly everyone went right that's that's where the money is so it was kind of interesting that those kind of slightly I suppose new romantic-esque kind of pop bands were quite popular as well like Duran Duran, Soft Cell, Spandau yeah. Ballet and then you had Dire Straits with "Money for Nothing." So then, but your first band. So before you got into the Seventeen Pygmies, which was '82, wasn't it? Were you in any bands before then?
1: Yeah, I was in Savage Republic.
0: Was that before then? Yeah. God, I, I should have got
1: Savage Republic in 1980.
0: That was yeah. the. That was your moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, here I was, sort of. You know, I mean, I had never been in a band, really. I mean, I was in a band with Bruce Leischer and uh, both of our girlfriends for about five minutes. You know, we actually put out a single called Them Rhythm if you can find it. It's kind of beyond obscure at this point. But, um, you know, we, that was my only real experience with a band. I'd never really played in one, uh, probably just as well, I think. I mean, I could barely, I mean, I, I was the one who could actually play guitar. <laughs> you know, because I actually played guitar before that. Had some, you know, lessons and learned. Yes. And, um, you know, it's funny because uh, it didn't really occur to me to really uh, be in music at the time. Although I was a, I, I had come to a crossroads <laughs> in my life that I still, look back to this day, and wonder what I was thinking. But you know, better than if you're in college, you don't think. That's my basic opinion. But I, I, was, I had to declare my major. And I know this sounds weird, but the two that I was wanted, couldn't figure out which one, was political science or art. So those were the two I was <clears throat> interested in and had the background in. And so sure enough, I applied to several different schools and uh, some of them I got into on uh, political science. But the one that accepted, I'm very weird to this day, I don't know why, but the one that accepted me as an art student was UCLA. And so that was the big school on the block. So I wanted to go there. So I figured I would just go there. And so on almost a whim, (laughs) in many ways, I ended up going to art school at UCLA. And so that's when I started to actually um, think about music a little bit more seriously um, and things of that nature. Um, and then what happened was, is uh, finally I ran into, um, by now I was kind of getting a little bit more into the scene here. Um, I still remember learning about, uh, for instance, uh, you know, kind of, we started, you know, post punk started to become a thing. All of a sudden, I didn't call it that. I, mean, I I never heard that term into it recently. Matter of fact, we just called it college rock. Right. That's what I called it. For many many years, and you know, kind of the REM was the big dog on the block, but there's all these other bands that followed. But the one of the bands that really impressed me and uh, got me not shocking, by the way, by any stretch of the imagination, but one of the bands that really uh, hit me when I heard them the first time was Joy Division. Right. Uh, oh, really cool, you know. I just mm, love that record. You know, just that first record is just even today it's like. Where the hell did this come from? I mean, this is just, and I think back and there really was nothing like that. I mean, it was just kind of like, there was just no combination of those elements. And uh, very sad because, you know, uh, a bunch of us were gonna go see uh, Joy Division play at the Shrine Auditorium here. And of course, Ian did not (laughs) comply.
0: No, God, that is so sad, isn't it? Jesus.
1: He died the night
0: before they were going to play here yeah i know what a story horrendous actually god that's too sad so when when you got the band savage republic together um because what you know one thing i've noticed that you know okay this is in the uk in the 80s but you know normally bands you know they sort of cobble together you know the members of, of what will be a group and they spend about 12 months rehearsing playing and in in this country you know we had a DJ called John Peel and he you know he's like oh great we've got a single send it to John Peel and it was like you know oh that's you know and if it's quirky and a bit odd you know John loved it he'd play it sometimes say, come back do a session for you know for a whole day and there was a producer called Dale Griffith, who was always, uh, he was the drummer for Mop the Hoople and he would do, do four tracks. And that gave bands that kind of, OK, we're, we're going somewhere and getting more gigs around the country because, you know, the UK is tiny. But every little town, every town, every city had a had a venue and an alternative night. So people could sort of get in their little transit vans and drive around the country in a random but enthusiastic way, playing to gigs. So how did your, you know, the band uh, Savage Republic, how did that sort of Come together and and the sound, which was quite unusual, wasn't it?
1: Hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, it wasn't a whole lot like that. But we, you know, it's funny because when I think about uh, Savage Republic, one of the good, bad, or indifferent. I mean, I don't think of it as any. Uh, you know, I some people don't don't think it's a great idea, but you know, we sort of went out of our way to try to sound like nobody else. I mean, we really were one of those bands where we said you know, we don't have to invent the wheel, you know, but why don't we try to do something that just, it just sounds like us. And so, you know, we started to get this kind of, you know, different ideals together and all of us had different um, ideas of what we thought the band should sound like. It it was kind of a weird band. I mean, it was never, although again, I, I don't know how much some of the other band members remember back then, but this was as, as, as anarchy-ridden a band as you'll ever see in your life. I mean, none of us listened to each other. (laughs) We just kind of said, well, this is what I'm going to do. You know, blah, 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 blah. And we'd say stuff like, well, my song's better than yours. So, I mean, it was just sort of this weird, (laughs) like, you didn't know what you would be doing. It was sort of like, whoever just sort of was, you know, more willful that day (laughs) got kind of a say in where the music went. And, um, you know, one of the things that uh, we started to look at at that time, which uh, I can tell you, there were some touchstones, though, that all of us were very impressed with. Um, I don't really know if it ever came through the band until much later when we started to do records a little more consciously about it. But all of us were really big uh, Krautrock fans. Right. We really loved Cannes. We all loved who We all loved Faust was really big. Uh, the first two... Um, Craftwork records, uh, Noi was I. I loved Noi. I th- yeah. just thought it was the most amazing thing. And so um, you know, we kind of hit on those kind of little touchstones. And you know, we all of us by that time liked punk. You know, we liked the rawness of it and everything like that. And so we just tried to haul in a bunch of different kind of musical experiences that we all had. Now I'm going to let you in on a secret. <laughs> we always had a secret weapon which was, in worst-case scenario, we would turn everything and make it sound like a surf band. Right. Everything else failed. And so that's when we started to wash everything up in reverb. That's when we started to sound like Savage Republic. Uh, So this doesn't make any sense. Good. Let's keep playing that. (laughs) That's really what it was. I mean, we sort of like, you know, we sort of... Because I liked... um, Uh, growing up, uh, I was allowed not to listen to surf music, believe it or not, but I could listen to things like, um, oh, Martin Denny, uh, Exotica stuff. Right. Back in those days. Well, California, you know, I mean, that was, that was our sound, my parents' soundtrack was those, you know, fake Hawaiian records. They played them all the time. And, um, was a
0: cut? So. There was a duo called Jan and Dave.
1: Jan and Dave. Yeah, Jan and Dean. They were yeah. big. Dead Man's Curve. You know all this. You know, so
0: were were, ba- were records like that? Were they allowed in the house? Were your parents going? Yes, that's fine. Or was that like no, that's too much?
1: Uh, you know, it, it's so funny because I do have a really odd story about that. I made a very tactical mistake because <clears throat> I tried to I tried to bring surf into the house. Okay. I said, surf music, come on. dickdale. Everyone knew Dick Dale. He was all over the TV by then. And so I went out and I bought uh church key, which was, you know, a pretty popular song uh, at the time. Even, you know, everyone knew that was a classic by now, but I forgot that in surfer parlance, church key means can opener. And so you had to have a church key to open your beer back then because they didn't have pull tops and stuff. So they, what they would do is one person who was surfing would always wear the church key around their neck when they mm-hmm. surfed. And my parents found out and they said, we don't want you to be an alcoholic. <laughs> oh. um, it acted so it took a couple of years to actually put
0: that yeah. one back yeah That that put you back two years didn't it really god it's so tricky isn't it so look your experience because you were recording this over quite a period of time didn't you now tell mm-hmm. us cause this was in radio tokyo wasn't it this studio which was in Venice, california with and you had this is when you met ethan james yeah mm-hmm. so had you known ethan before this
1: Oh, um, I got introduced to uh, Ethan, uh, believe it or not, through Lisa. I knew Lisa first, uh, Lisa Mitchell. Right. Because uh, we went to the same school. She went to UCLA as well. And, um, yeah, and so I actually met her first. And, you know, she was actually um, telling me about uh, Jane Bond and stuff like that. And then she just kind of said uh, you know, why don't you come by sometime? I mean, I was actually there when they recorded one of the songs. Um, you know, it was kind of funny because Ethan did all the music and then she came in later. Uh, so everything was kind of done. Yes. But um, I was actually there when they recorded uh, their kind of, and they didn't have, they had kind of a minor K-rock hit called I'm Bored. If you've never heard of it. No. You no, know, you gotta look it's hilarious. It's Ethan playing like cocktail music. And then Lisa's going like, I'm bored. Would you take off that rubber suit, please? I'm bored. And it became like a minor hit here. And so I'm watching this going, okay. (laughs) And so that's actually how I met uh, Ethan. And then what happened was, is he later got back in touch with me uh, through Lisa. And he was doing an album called the Radio Tokyo Tapes. And um, this was like, there's volume one and volume two. You ever find them, they're fabulous records. I think they're even on YouTube now. But that was like, he was just trying to put together what was going on in Los Angeles at the time. And it's really an interesting snapshot of what was really going down. So
0: what is what is the Radio Tokyo Studios? What, what was it sort of famous?
1: Yeah, oh yeah, very well among, you know, persons who knew what it was. It was just a really tiny little uh, yellow house. Um, upstairs people lived. He had the downstairs part. And it was like, you know, one room and stuff of that nature. But, you know, I, but Ethan really, well, first of all, he was a very good engineer. And so we all felt very lucky to get someone who actually knew how to use the material. Most people were just ignoring us back then. Yeah. And, um, and also he was he was very tuned into what was going on. You know, he wanted to be. He wanted to know what was on the street. He wasn't interested in what was, you know, in the clubs on the Sunset Strip. It just wasn't, you know, his thing. And so he calls us up and he says, I'm offering any band that will play on my record free studio time. You give me one track, you do anything you want with it. And so we thought, why not? And so we went over and recorded a track for him. And it was such a positive experience that when it came time for us to actually gee, you think we can record a record? We actually just all agreed that we wanted him to be the person that would record it for us. Yes,
0: was he something of a, a sort of a bit of, not, you know, genius, but was he somebody who was quite special in that world of of sort of knowing how to make things happen?
1: Oh, well, mm-hmm. um, yeah, pretty much. I mean, he was in Blue Cheer um, for many years, so we kind of, he got a little bit of a bump from that. Uh, He was actually from uh, San Francisco. So he actually, his early ties are all with like up there. And uh, one of the things that made him kind of uh, special was that um, uh, Blue Cheer was the house band at the Fillmore. And so that meant that unless there was some particular reason not to have them open the show for whoever played, they would open virtually every show. Right. You know, and if you saw the list of people that they opened for, I mean, we're talking the Fillmore here. I mean, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, the Doors. The, I mean, everybody they opened for them. They knew they were they were friendly with them. Yes, the whole deal. So I mean, he really came out of a very kind of storied background, and yes. plus he was a really nice guy. You know, he was just really cool. I mean, you know, most people are out just you know, music industry, you know, they're all hustling around and everything, and, you know, as they say in the world, you know, how you end up in California is way back when, when, um, you know, God decided to get rid of all the nuts. It was the Californians that forgot to hold on, and we ended up here, so (laughs) it was just crazy. The music industry was this insane thing out here, you know, and, uh, here we were kind of always peripheral to it. And so Ethan was like a, a port in a storm for most of us. He took us seriously. Um, he didn't rush us. He, he helped us, you know, form our sounds. I mean, he really, but he had a great way about it. You know, he wouldn't tell you to do this. He wouldn't tell you you were too commercial. He didn't care. You know, he was kind of like, let's just try to get, he had this thing about energy. He used to tell me about it all the time. He said, you can always tell a good record from a bad record because the good records have energy. You catch the retro, you know, you get the energy in the grooves. That's what makes a good record. He goes, you can have a really bad song, but the energy can carry it through. Right. Whereas a really good song without any energy is still just a dud. He said, it just doesn't sound right. And so he was really keyed into that, this idea that you had to catch energy in the grooves. And so, you know, we're all sitting around going, sure. (laughs) Sure. You know, I mean, we know what he's talking about. But you know, his time has proven. You you go back and you listen to his recordings and there's just something very, um, he came as close that I know of, uh, particularly considering, the you know, he he was all four track back in those days. He came as close to actually capturing a song where you thought you were in the room with the band as anybody ever did very immediate sound and um that was quite a thing i mean we were really like oh yeah you know we like the sound a lot you know yeah. Have a drink. Like, yeah that really sounds like an oil drum you know <laughs> yeah, the pipe. we love it you know? <laughs> so, that was kind of how it all came about that was yeah you know, people then, were always dropping in and dropping out you know all the time and people would come in go out come in go out um, one of my more interesting moments, I, I mentioned a little bit before, but um, one of the things that I got to sit, sit in on, because I would just happened to be there, is, um, you know, I, Ethan said, I'll give you one song, you know, that you can do. Well, I came in and I was there the day that the Minutemen uh, were going to record their song. Well, they kind of fooled Ethan um, but I've never seen anything like this to this day. They basically uh, went through 24 minutes and they told Ethan it was one song. It was really 12. And they just kept going. They actually recorded, I can't remember the name of the record off the top of my head, in one take. They recorded an entire record. And you're just sitting there and I'm watching this and you know, all their songs were really short, you know, one or two minutes. That's why they called themselves the Minutemen back then. And you know you're sitting there going, "Oh, this is a great song." One, two, three, four, and they're into another one. One, two, three, four, and then another one. And by finally they're done. And I'm looking at Ethan. He's looking at me, and he goes, "That's just what they do." Twelve <laughs> songs in a row, one take, and they ended up releasing it as an album. So I've never seen anything like that to this day. Wow! What? <laughs> Amazing. But they were really special. Uh, the Minutemen really were something else. Amazing, amazing band I mean they yeah. really never got I mean they they had a good reputation but they never got what they deserved but they were very very unique and quite wonderful quite frankly
0: yeah, yeah. but she then rocks. but then you but then you also decide after the album which came out um which is titled oh God, tragic figures isn't it
1: yeah, yeah it was is it. this
0: and then do you leave quite soon after that
1: well, <laughs> my story with Savage Republic is leave, come back, leave, come back, leave, come back. So it depends when you ask me. But I came and went from the band like this. maybe every other week at one point.
0: Were you really leaving or, or were you just thinking you might try something else? Or were you saying, no, this time it really is the end. I'm, I'm definitely going. No, I'm back again.
1: Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of both. <laughs> I actually did leave though, I thought for good in 84 though. Um, but the reasons wasn't really musical or anything like that. It's because um, I, I had to leave town. So. I
0: 84. Hmm? In 84, oh, you left. Oh,
1: it was worth by Yeah. So when did you start yeah.
0: 17 yeah. Pygmies then? That was 82, wasn't it? 83?
1: Well, I finally left Savage Republic in 84. Uh, 82 mm-hmm. was when I started. Uh, dabbling with uh, 17 pygmies. Um, It's just a weird story. The whole band came about because uh, I had written this riff, which later became uh, the basis of Lawrence of Arabia. Epic (laughs) song. And nobody in Savage Republic wanted to do it. They just kind of looked at me like, "Mm -hmm." so I said, all right, well, I'm, you know, I'm gonna keep this one in the back of my mind. I think it's kind of a cool, Little riffy thing, and you know, people ask from time to time, and they say, Do you want to start a band? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And uh, you know, finally, a guy named Michael Corey, who I, I kind of knew, I didn't know him real well, but um, he said, Well, I, I can play keyboards. Do you want to get together and jam? And uh, we got together and jam, and you know, all of a sudden, he was doing all this stuff. And by now, it's interesting because by now, 82, I actually knew who King Crimson was, <laughs> you know. It's like, oh, some of that stuff you're doing sounds like King Crimson, you know. <laughs> and I'm freaking out, you know, I'm like, wow, wow, wow. And then he did some riff or something. And I just, I went, <laughs> I still remember just like saying, oh my God, that sounds like, and it was like, that's like Emerson, Lake and Palmer, do that again. You now <laughs> all of a sudden I'm into all this stuff. And that's actually how the band came about. And then, um, Debbie Spinelli shows up one day, and she says, you know, I'm a better drummer than any of the drummers you have in any of your Ratbag bands. And I said, oh, really? Well, come on down, you know, I, I like a challenge. Okay, she comes in and she completely blows us all out of the room. I mean, she was truly an amazing drummer. And um, she got one of a, her friends named Faye uh, in the band, again, another person kind of running around, and that was the basis of the band for a couple of years. When we kind of yes. But but that's how it all came about, and, um, you know, the, the really weird part is that Savage, I mean, Savage Republic was one thing, but there was really no particular reason for 17 Pygmies to ever really exist, much less continue, but something would always come up, you know, I'd always think like just leave it behind, and then think, well, you know, it's just this weird sideband of mine, and then something would come up, we'd get something from someone, would you open for so-and-so, so-and-so is coming to Los Angeles, they like you. And we're like, how do you even know who we are? You know, <laughs> stuff like that. And then sure enough, um, in 19, way after, I thought the band was like way beyond its expiration date. Um, Robert Lovelace, who was in the band, uh, he came on very shortly and he stayed and everyone else left and he stayed. But anyways, with that said, um, he um, wanted to know if I wanted to record some music. And I thought, sure, why not? And uh, he had a singer, Louise at the time, uh, who was also his his girlfriend, uh, later wife. And, uh, you know, she had a very pretty voice. And she was uh, quite the poetess, you know, her lyrics were actually kind of, kind of cool. And so we went ahead and we recorded this sort of side of an album, and just kind of strange. And some of it was kind of this and that, and kind of circusy, and you know, more really Robert's show by then. You know, always I always thought of that as the record he wanted to make that he never got to, and yeah, you know, I was happy to help him, things like that. And, um, sure enough, uh, Louise knew, um, uh, what's his name, the guy at I oh, I can't think of the, name. the guy that ran Island Records. I oh, think. um can't think of his name off the top of my head anymore. I know. I like, Yes. <laughs> I'm and
0: like, we'll, we'll find that out in just a second. Um, Mr. She, sort of lives on some sort of exotic island, doesn't he? Sort of Chris Blackwell.
1: Chris Blackwell. That's right. Yes. And so she knew his secretary. Right. And so what she did was just, she went over to have lunch uh, with his secretary. And she didn't tell her but before she whatever however she did this but she left a copy of our tape on her desk didn't say she was leaving it didn't say what it was you know when, whenever she saw it she probably looked and said what's this she might have figured out louise left it on her desk it was totally unsolicited and we got a call like she said you know she listened to it and then she said chris you have to hear this <laughs> And so he gave it to him, and he loved it. And so he gave it to Kim Bowie, who at the time was like the head of A&R. And he said, if you like it, you know, I'm, I'm down. And we get a call from Kim Bowie: Island Records wants to sign you. Really? You know, seriously? I mean, this is barely a band at this point. I mean, I've seen these guys like twice in a year to record. And so, sure enough, we got back together, but uh you know we recorded an album uh, for Island, and of course, it miserably failed and um, you know it was pretty far out there. If you ever find it it's called welcome it's pretty hard to find though it's kind of a weird record, a lot of strange stuff on it, but um you know we kind of um you know we just sort of i mean it was just one of those really funny things where you know we kind of. You know, and, and, you know, they started getting very mad at us because they're like, well, you never do anything. And I said, you don't understand. What you put out is the only thing we've done in over a year. We don't get together. We don't play shows. We don't do anything. What do you want us to do? There's no band. It's just a bunch of people who played on this record. And um, they said, well, you know, good record, but uh, see you later. (laughs) And they got rid of us after.
0: Yes. Well, that's Mm -hmm. quite interesting because you had recorded a couple of... You'd won by um, is it Jeddah by the sea captured in ice? Then you did welcome, but then so was the band kind of a conceptual, creative project that you know a random group of people were making, or because it doesn't sound like you were sort of a bit like um, you know Savage Republic, or well, not. That's probably not a great example because there seem to be a lot of members. But you know, like with most bands, there is definitely a lineup, isn't there?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Sour Republic Public had a lineup for sure. Um, there was something interesting about the way the four of us played uh, that never really happened again. But um, with Seventeen Pygmies, I mean, more or less what it tended to be, particularly in the in the earlier years, was um, if you can suffer me as your producer, come on down and play. Right. <laughs> Pretty much it. I mean, there's not a whole lot of agenda. There was not a whole lot of practice. There's not a whole lot of anything in the band, really. It was just kind of like, well, nobody else will let me do this. So this is where I do it. And then again, later in the band's history, because he had stayed so long, uh, Robert, and all of a sudden near the end, it was like, well, you know, what did you always want to do? I mean, I don't really have anything left to say in <laughs> 17 Pygmies. And it really wasn't until I think it was 17 years later, I actually recorded. Another Seventeen big news track.
0: Yes, that's amazing. So you were so just going back, because I'm always kind of curious because of that first yeah. moment with Jane Bond and the Undercover Men, with your involvement with that, it's just purely on the album artwork then?
1: Oh, I never played on any of their tracks. Yeah, it was just Lisa and um, Ethan. And then every so often they had somebody come in and maybe play a guitar part or something. But there really were only two persons in the band. Uh, every time they took a photograph, if you see some of their earlier records, say a the third person or fourth person. They were just people who happened to be in the studio that day that they thought looked 80s. <laughs> they had nothing to do whatsoever with the band. Yes,
0: absolutely. So with your own musical kind of narrative then, you were sort of with these two bands sort of doing bits and pieces and then sort of because the 80s you know that period between 83 and 87 which i always think is kind of really indie pop in that jingly jangly guitar sound, which was the years of the Smiths. and then you know ecstasy comes along in sort of 86 87 88 there was everyone wanted you know the next dancing especially in the uk so we had primal screen the soup dragons happy mondays stone roses then you had you know seattle with you know Nirvana and this grunge scene and then we had a few years after that we had Britpop. So did you continue a life in music or did you you know do other things?
1: Oh, no, I took off uh, I took a long break from music. (laughs) I actually ended up going to uh, of all things um, I actually ended up going back to law school uh, when I was 34 uh, years old and I graduated Well, I thought about going back and then finally got in. And I got out just, I was 39 years old and, you know, looking for my ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th career. I don't know. But anyways, and so I came out and what ended up happening was through a series of (laughs) really, like, really bizarre events, (laughs) to be honest with you. Uh, Kind of the emblosion of a law school that I was working at at the time as just an adjunct. I ended up being the dean of the school literally because I was the only person left standing after this scandal <laughs> that went on there. And they said, oh, put him as the dean. Nobody, he didn't do anything, he's <laughs> wrong. And so they, they elevate me to the dean, mostly for the reason that I didn't know what the hell had just happened. I had no idea it happened all behind my back. And so when people were asking me questions, like I'm gonna about, man. I was teaching in a class, I had no idea. And so I ended up becoming the dean of a law school, and from there, I kind of drifted into uh, after not wanting to be a dean anymore. <laughs> Long story, uh, I started teaching constitutional law. Right so now, I've, now, I've been a constitutional law professor for ten years.
0: Right, God, that's amazing. So, so with the scandal, you know, just briefly, what was what was the kind of what was the kind of gist of it?
1: Oh, the scandal. Yes. Oh.
0: It was just the money. Someone was uh, embezzling money.
1: Yeah.
0: Never mind. It does happen, doesn't it? So, yes. So, when was the last um, kind of mu- mu- musical moment you had? I mean, have you, you know, because I'm sort of keeping track of this. So, it was the, the with the two bands, when was the last time you sort of did any recording with them?
1: Well, you know, we did do, I mean, we... It's the funny part is I still do, before the COVID virus hit, uh, right before um, myself and Jeff Brenneman, another guy, and Greg Grunke from Savage Republic and uh, Dirk Doucette, and then uh, my wife, uh, Meg Marriott, in case you ever see her name show, that's, that's my wife. Um, we actually would, would play like once a month and get together and jam and we were writing stuff and playing around and we actually were toying with the idea of uh, getting a show we were actually we were starting to get some nibbles I mean people were impressed we were still alive <laughs> much less do <Yes>. <laughs> you agree I've had several people now over the last couple of years saying you are not the guy I would assume would still be alive today but with that said <laughs> <laughs> so we were actually having a lot of fun and doing stuff and then COVID virus hit and you all know, just kind of yes so
0: so between the two bands you've you've got quite a lot of material haven't you Mm -hmm. yeah which is quite
1: tons of stuff yeah
0: absolutely tons because i was looking at the discography of 17 pygmies and thinking wow that's just an enormous amount of albums
1: well i'll tell you what if at some point you send me uh uh, your uh, physical address i will send you a box of goodies (laughs) Be aware, it's going to be about this big. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> that's that's fantastic. I mean, it's just you know, it's just such a sort of. So it really was a sort of a case that the '80s you were sort of in bands. What just roughly were you still doing lots in the '90s, or was that when you decided to move into a professional career?
1: Yeah, the '90s, I almost made no music at all. There's really a huge gap between uh, 1989. I think was the last thing I recorded. And after that, I don't think I recorded anything again until 2006. Right. Pretty long, big gap. Yeah, in 1989 to 2006, I didn't record a note. Blimey. I mean, I had some offers, too, and I just, I I don't know. It just was one of those things where it just, nope. (laughs) Turned down, you know, all these offers to go on tour. Um, turned down a bunch of offers to you know do more music just turned them all down I just just wasn't interested. Yes well it's hard
0: you know to kind of balance things did you do much touring outside LA did you sort of because I know there's some live albums from Savage Republic did you ever come to Europe or the UK or anything like that? Yeah, A couple times
1: yeah we played uh, we did two separate European tours uh, the first one was a little shorter than the second one. The second one was pretty long. And we ended up making it all the way to Greece. Uh, so that was kind of interesting. Because uh, we actually became uh, one of the really curious story, again, kind of pan stuff. But we were actually really, really popular uh, in Greece. Um, it was like if you were to see in like particularly the mid 80s, their pop charts, which is very different than ours, you'd see, like, you know, typically Madonna was number one. Uh, number two would be something like, you know, some unknown European star. We have no idea who they are. And then Savage Republic would be, like, number 3 on the top ten selling discs in, in Greece. It was just beyond bizarre. Yes. But, but unknown to us, <laughs> what we had done was, uh, you know, we always liked soundtracks. And so we had recorded a version of a song called "O oh, Adonis, Andonis, uh, from the Z soundtrack, a movie by Costas Gravis and a really cool movie about, you know, uh, political intrigue in Greece and, you know, things of that nature. A true story, really good movie. And um, the thing was, is we had no idea that this theme song, Oh, Adonis" had become like a communist, you know, raise the flag song that was really quite a quite a thing there you know i mean i, I can't say you would be shot for playing it or you know, on your radio but kind of meant you were you know against the government and it was a big kind of anarchy thing right and, you know they call us up and they say oh my god we can't believe you did this song do you believe in the cause and we're like what fucking cause <laughs> what you're talking about <gasps> and, and, and they started telling us all these stories about how we were huge there because we'd recorded the song. And they just couldn't believe that anybody outside would show solidarity with the Greek people. And we're all like, kind of, yes, tell us this again. Hmm. <laughs> no idea, we just liked the song. And so we kept going over there and it was it was kind of really one of the more interesting shows we've ever done. I think there was like 500, 700 people somewhere between that. Yeah, and did
0: you come to the UK and do yeah t- the UK? Yeah, wow, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, that's you know, well, at least you've got quite a, a rock and roll kind of history here, haven't you? You know, you've you've done the eighties kind of circuit. So yeah. was it just did you do sort of London, Manchester, Glasgow, or did you just do London?
1: We did London, and then we. Memory's a little old here. Uh, but we ended up going up. And I don't remember all the stops that we made, but we ended up in ended up in Edinburgh. Right. And so we sort of went up and down. Up and down.
0: Did you you didn't come to Norwich by any chance, did you?
1: I think so. It doesn't sound familiar.
0: No. But, because but it's now, kind of like that circuit in the 80s. There was band, you know, there was places like um, I suppose you had Bristol Brighton, but then you had sort of the, I don't know, the Harlow Square, then you had the Leicester Prin- uh, Princess Charlotte, and then you had Leeds, and then Manchester, Liverpool. So you mm-hmm. never know, you might have played some of those gigs as well. But most towns, like I said, right. were, you know, we did have these kind of gatekeepers, you know, you had the the music press, like the NME, Melody Maker, Sounds, Record Mirror, then you had John Peel, he was this DJ who played a lot of quirky stuff. And then, you know, most places had an alternative indie night or whatever night you know often on monday or thursday you know monday to thursday because that's when you know there was probably the, the the sort of venue owner probably thought look you can just have the monday night do what you want you know if loads of 18 year old kids want to come out and see some sort of weird and scratchy little band you can have it cheap you know so i think that's why there's a lot of indie nights kind of between monday and thursday really isn't it more than friday and saturday you know when um so yeah it's it's quite I guess you, you sort of realize that the UK is so small that actually people can just kind of tour it quite uh, efficiently, I suppose. That's the, that's the term, isn't it? So, um, yes, and then you can hit the public. So there you go. Yeah.
1: Well, you saw one of the other funny stories uh, about when we were touring was um, we ran into, uh, you know, guys always run into other bands that are touring as well. And we ran into, um, I don't don't know if you remember them or not, uh, Eyeless in Gaza. That sounds really cool band, (laughs) you should check them out. Just these two guys who just are pretty wacky crazy. And they were on tour as well. And so, you know, they were pretty much uh, two guys. One guy did all the music, one guy sang. They were very electronic at the time. And we're like, so how are you touring? You know, what are you doing? And, you know, they're like, well, we're, we're taking the train. <laughs> I mean, they literally went train stop to train stop to train stop. Because they didn't really have any gear.
0: Yes, <laughs> so, absolutely.
1: And so it's they great. were like, how many shows are you doing? 28. <laughs> how many days? 28. <laughs> cool, <laughs> fabulous. And so they were pretty cool guys. Yes, that's pretty good. <laughs> you listen to their music and it's like, I listen to guys they
0: were very cool. Nice. So look, just lastly, I mean, if you were to, you could say something to your 18 year old self, you know, starting out and you're thinking after all these, you know I mean? Cause you've been on a phenomenal amount of records, you know, and you've done a lot, you know, you haven't just played in front of your friends and family and anybody else you can blackmail to see you live. You know, you've, you've done around and you've done lots of other things. What would you, what would you say? What wisdom have you picked up over the decades that you think God, that would have been a good thing to have whispered in someone's ear, myself.
1: Ah, that's a very interesting question. Um, well, I, I guess my, well, I guess my answer to that would be, uh, when I look back uh, at everything that I did, um, the one thing that I, I am probably most proud of uh, is that I just did whatever the hell I wanted to do. And, you know, nothing else really occurred to me. I mean, I was shocked when people would come up to me and say, do you think you can write a hit single? <laughs> what? I, it was just insanity. And so when, to me, that would be insanity. And so uh, when I look back, I was, if I was to tell myself, you know, actually, uh, I would put my, you know, um, I would put my uh, finger on my face and I would say, just remember whether you're right or you're wrong, you're right or you're wrong, stick to your guns. Stick to your guns. Don't let them. Mm-mm. If that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. And believe it or not, that actually means today a lot to me, that I actually was in a band like Savage Republic. That I mean, What were the chances of any success? 17 Pygmies, even less. <laughs> <You know? laughs> But nonetheless, you know, I look back now and, um, you know, I mean, the experiences were the experiences. You know, I can I can certainly tell you any number of things like, yeah, you shouldn't have gone home with her. I'm sure that was a bad idea. Or why did you go and try to pick on a guy 6'6"? Six, six? I mean, that was a bad habit I had back then. And, um, you know, a lot of like really, you know, oddities. But over and over, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, you know, you have to live with yourself. And, um, you know, I, as much as I like a lot of other types of bands and things like that, I mean, I could have never been in a Duran Duran. I mean, it just, <laughs> just wouldn't have worked. you know. Yes. You know we, we all knew big hair bands and stuff like that back then. And, you know, we could all do all sorts of, you know, could have went in any direction. But in the long run, you know, I've always been very glad that, uh, you know, I I did. What I thought was, you know, I don't don't want to use the word, but I can't think of any other word. I always did what I thought was valuable. Yes. This is valuable. This is something that should be caught, you know, energy. (laughs) Yes, good old Ethan. Yeah, so I'm just so glad I never wasted my time, you know, recording records and then saying, oh, yeah, you know, because, like, right now I I live in the Coachella Valley now which is just outside of uh, Palm Springs area. So I live in the middle of the desert. And so the only bands we get out here are casino bands. So every other week I can see sticks. <laughs> but I mean, but I, it would horrify me if somebody said, yeah, Savage Republic should go play at the 29 Palms Casino. I mean, this would horrify me that we would actually get back together and do something like that. And so stick oh, to your guns oh, is what I would tell myself.
0: That's good advice. That's very good advice. It's funny because um, just briefly, I, I we, we sort of found a love of coming to, um, I suppose we loved the national parks in that kind of Las Vegas kind of area. So we fly into Vegas, stay a few nights, to get a car, drive around. So, yeah, so all those kind of national parks in that area, we sort of visited a lot. And uh, we've been to Palm Springs and even went to see the Elvis honeymoon hideaway place that he's kind of... So uh, it was all good. So, where did you say you're just outside at, um, Palm Springs?
1: Yeah, I'm east of there. I'm about 40 minutes east.
0: Did you say Coachella?
1: Yeah, Coachella. I oh, like, where the
0: festival is?
1: I live nine miles from the festival.
0: Nice. My I God.
1: player every year.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, and is it, you know, I'm always thinking, what's it like when you live in those places?
1: Well, um, mostly why you come out, uh, Palm Springs is one thing. See, we, we consider Palm Springs the edge of civilization. So we're kind of out here because we want to be left alone. We're more like the leave me alone people. Right. So we get really, really freaked out whenever Coachella happens, by the way. We're like looking around going, ah, people. But um, it's it's just, it's very quiet. Um, you know, again, I'm I'm 62. My wife is is a little older than I am, and so you know, we just both of us grew up in the hustle and bustle of Los Angeles, and we both just kind of threw up our hands and said, let Let's get out. <laughs> <You>
0: know, <laughs> you know. Clear, clean air and uh, big yeah. skies. Yeah, no, we've we've always loved coming out to uh, those kind of places, and um, well,
1: yeah, I do feel free. I mean, feel free to stop in.
0: Yeah, you never know. We could be there. Yes, I mean I've got fond memories of Los, um, of Palm Springs. You know, it was quite nice. You know, but there you but go. It's
1: nice out here. I mean, we're not moving anytime soon. Yeah, we we actually really rather like it out here.
0: Yeah, I can see. You know, I mean, when last time we were sort of we went to the Joshua Tree and went around yeah. all those kind of places, and again, you know, just I mean, it was a bit of a repeat trip because we'd done it a few years before. But you know, it's something really delightful you know it's something really nice
1: oh yeah yeah I mean it's definitely it's a really I mean again it's, everything has its good and its bad side but everything being equal we really just like the lifestyle out here yeah cool we're laid back you know we're very you know you stay out of my way I'll stay out of your way you know, <laughs> kind of, it's cool you know? yeah you know, awesome, as we say
0: nice well look thank you ever so much and it's been very it's been fantastic and like I said it was, it was all because I was I thought I look at this at the weekend and I was thinking I really must I knew I know Ethan had died but I was thinking I still need to sort of get hold of Lisa and it's like I still couldn't you know and it was all roads led nowhere but then
1: I actually know someone who knows where she is so if you get a note from me uh, I haven't
0: talked to him, but I'll I'll call him and I'll see. Oh, you okay, if he, if I
1: would, you know, know. He does so. Just she, a friend of mine. I think he knows where
0: she is. You know, and I've been, you know, I sort of did that thing that you do for ten minutes, like googling and looking on Facebook and looking here and you are thinking, no, she's not about it, and you know, Jane Bond and the un- undercover men just don't come up, and it's like, and I thought, oh, okay, Philip might know. <laughs> Philip, <laughs> Perhaps he knows. That must be like, who the hell's this?
1: <laughs> yeah, I know one person who I think is still in contact with her. Yeah. Let me, let me call him up and see if he knows.
0: Yeah, but you he never can... know. She might go, I don't want to think about it. But anyway, look, it's been fantastic. And thank you ever so much. And um, and I'll put it out and I'll give you a link. I'll send you a link and then you can go, well, wow, there you go. Check it out. Oh,
1: great. Well, again, my thank you. My pleasure.
0: Anyway. Yeah. And it's been brilliant in the show and doing, you know, being able to put it out because you wouldn't believe, but there are there is somebody, or well, quite a lot of people around the world who'll go, Oh, Blimey, that band. Oh god, thanks, God for that. You know, I've and it's strange because the more obscure the band, I realise, the more interesting. When I've got a band who's who's kind of been in the head pe- pe- press or papers, you know, it's a bit like I notice that no one's that interested, like, oh, everyone's heard the story, but a band that no one's heard the story, they're like, oh, Oh, that's curious. I'll have to listen. There you go. It does happen. Yeah. Look, I'll let you get on. But uh, thanks again. Sorry about the hour difference. Never mind. No Take care, bye. Philip. See you later. Bye bye. And, uh, and that was me in conversation with Philip Drucker, finding out about life in his um, yes musical life, really, um, including Savage Republic, Them rhythmance. 17 pygmies anyway this has been david east or the c86 show if you want to contact me you can on facebook twitter instagram just do c86 show make it positive (laughs) or if it's not positive and groovy then don't bother um also these have all been archived so you can find those on spotify itunes and podbean there you go anyway have a great week stay safe